From New York's Hudson River Valley, I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Read 650 celebrates writers and the spoken word, five minutes and 650 words at a time. And the theme of today's show is Lessons Learned, featuring true personal stories from Annabelle Monahan, Carrie Patterson, and me. Unfortunately, my five-year-old has developed an unhealthy interest in the game of life. The only game I know that is possibly more complicated than life itself. <laughs> I officiated my first ever wedding as a minister. The same week, I told my husband I wanted to separate. Rehearsals for a spring performance of Mozart's Requiem were about to begin. A three-hour class meeting for the next 15 Wednesday nights. And on today's Between the Lines segment, teacher and musician Leanne Soule identifies the impulse and the inspiration that prompted her to begin writing. I wasn't a writer before my grandmother died. I was a musician and a teacher, a voracious reader who kept a journal but never felt called to write for anyone other than myself. That's all just ahead on Read 650. Learning never stops. Real learning begins when we enter the world with our lives. Now a cinematic fast-forward through first steps and tying our own shoelaces to a first bus ride, algebra test, driving test, swim test, through learning to cook and dance and play an instrument, through being hired and fired and falling in and out of love, the gamut of lived human experiences, all of which, in their own way, teach us things. These are rites of passage, or life lessons. Lessons Learned was the theme of a Read 650 event we produced at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York, at the invitation of Vassar's Lifelong Learning Institute. And the pieces you'll hear today were recorded at Vassar before a full and enthusiastic house. We begin today with a story of a young mother, her five-year-old son, and their very different perspectives on a classic board game. This is Annabelle Monahan reading Life Lessons. The great thing about Candyland and Chutes and Ladders is that they can be played in less than 15 minutes and take very little mental effort. Even so, when my husband comes home from work, I can still add, played a board game with the kids to my list of heroic accomplishments. <laughs> Unfortunately, my five-year-old has developed an unhealthy interest in the game of life, the only game I know that is possibly more complicated than life itself. <laughs> I, at first, I try to convince him that the little cars that lead us down life's path are there to be zoomed, that whoever gets to the end first wins. But he isn't having it, so I figure if we're going to have to play, we'll do it right. I'll teach him a few life lessons and get the dialogue going about the world around us, you know, actual parenting, like on TV. <laughs> the game starts at age 18, and I'm pleased to see that he chooses to go to college. Having made such a wise choice, he is faced with many career options after graduation. I encourage him to choose the accounting job because it comes with the possibility of the highest salary card. <laughs> to my horror, he chooses to be a singer because he claims that's what he likes to do. Why would he spend his life doing something he doesn't like just for the money? Sigh, he has a lot to learn. Meandering through life, we each stop to get married. 
He thinks carefully before choosing a pink peg for his spouse rather than a blue one. He buys a house, which he also chooses for its color. Later, I have to inform him that his house was robbed and that he should have bought the insurance like I told him to. <laughs> ah, an actual life lesson. He rejoices every time he lands on a square that gives him another baby. He fills up his car with the allotted four children and then hoards the extras in the back seat. I have another son who likes to collect the child pegs too, but he leaves them on the side of the board with his money, claiming, I don't want those kids riding in my car. We refer to him as the smart one. Life gets more complicated as you move along. He wants to know what a Pulitzer Prize is and if it comes with candy. He wants to know who has the solution to pollution and why anyone would want to swim across the English Channel. I can only answer one of those. At some point, I find myself explaining what a stock is and then what a dividend is and what taxes are for and how dividends are taxed at a lower rate than ordinary income and why <laughs> Warren Buffett doesn't really like that. As life winds down, we are laden with cash and real estate and lucky heirs, and we race towards retirement. If you can afford it, you get to retire at millionaire estates. And if you can't, you're relegated to countryside acres. Before you enter either, you sell your house, the price of which is determined by a random spin of the wheel. <laughs> which actually sounds about right. <laughs> Life ends, and I've realized that I've just spent a full hour explaining to a five-year-old how life works. I wait for the applause and maybe a little confetti as we each count up our money to determine who wins. And because I chose the rejected accounting job with the coveted yellow salary card, I have the most money. I tell him with great humility that I have won and he has lost. <laughs> he shakes his head and shows me his full little car. I have the most family. I win. I may need to rethink a few things. Annabelle Monahan is the author of two novels for young adults, A Girl Named Digit and Double Digit, both from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. She's also the author of Does This Volvo Make My Butt Look Big? a collection of essays based on her column that appears in the Huffington Post, The Week, and The Rye Record. Her first novel for adults, Nora Goes Off Script, will be published by G.P. Putnam Sons this summer. She teaches novel writing at the Writing Institute at Sarah Lawrence College, and she lives in Rye, New York, with her husband and three sons. Madison gets invited to a lot of weddings. Not for her wide circle of friends, nor her charm as a guest, but because as a minister, she has officiated at many of them, where she's also experienced many of life's lessons firsthand. Here's Carrie Pattison on stage at our special Lessons Learned event at Vassar College, reading Dearly Beloved. I officiated my first ever wedding as a minister, the same week, I told my husband I wanted to separate. In a cruel bit of irony, my nickname for him had been Dearly Beloved. Three years later, my younger brother George asked me to officiate his wedding. 
I envisioned standing before family and friends, some of whom I hadn't seen or heard from since they'd gotten wind of my divorce. Would they label me a fraud, a sorry excuse for a minister, or worse, a lesson in failure in an extended family that prided itself on longevity of marriage and religion? How could I explain to them that I still valued the covenant of marriage? I just couldn't stay in mine. When I told my mom how fraught this whole wedding thing felt, she said, you don't have to officiate. George can find someone else. Someone else? I'd played board games with him, babysat him, built bed tents with him. I knew the three-year-old circling the basement on his big wheel, the six-year-old shooting hoops from the driveway, the 10-year-old jumping off the diving board shouting, how about me, the number one? He was my brother. No one but me was going to pronounce him somebody's husband. At the hotel, I unpacked my black clergy robe and practiced my liturgy. I rehearsed a fake homily that began, you know your wedding's in trouble when your reverend's running from her marriage. <laughs> my insides were a mixture of jealousy, inferiority, and pride, all swirled together in a cocktail of anxiety. Also, I needed a cocktail. Instead, I knelt by the bed and begged for help. A year earlier, I'd witnessed George kneel down on one knee outside the restaurant where our families waited with cameras poised. Watching him gaze up at his girlfriend, I felt my breath stop as he popped the question. All month, he'd been planning to propose in a hot air balloon, and the winds would never cooperate. But this way, we all got to see and applaud the moment she nodded yes. And I'll never forget the look on George's face. How about me, the number one, as he entered that restaurant to the sounds of our cheers? George was the first person I'd told once I knew. I don't think I can stay married, I said, looking up from my scorecard at a Yankees game. He put down his beer and listened. He was my little brother, but I needed his advice. I'm afraid of letting so many people down, I said. He looked at me with concern and love. Carrie, he said, it's your life. You're the one who has to live it. I wish I knew what to tell you, but I know you'll know what to do. All I know is right now at the wedding chapel, my heart is filled to bursting with love for him. Just two feet in front of me, in a gray suit, he shifts his weight from right to left. The musicians begin playing, I'll marry you. And George turns toward the doors, slowly opening at the back of the room. His eyes look expectantly out over the heads of family and friends, and it is all I can do to contain the tears behind my eyes from pouring forth and spilling out over into the pews. As his soon-to-be wife floats down the aisle in a trail of white, the background of wedding guests and weathered pasts blurs into the distance because there is a love story to tell, and I get to be the one to tell it to bless and pray and point to the source of all love, 
the one who carries us even when the wind changes. My brother and his bride join hands, and from behind that wooden podium, minister, sister, divorcee, I cherish the role I get to play. Dearly beloved, I begin. A native of Kansas, Carrie Pattison currently serves as pastor of the Woodstock Reformed Church in Woodstock, New York. She also works at the nearby Euphoria Yoga Studio and the Golden Notebook Bookstore. Carrie's a former public school English teacher who earned her Master's of Divinity at Princeton University. She's also an Appalachian Trail thru-hiker who is delighted to have settled down here in the Hudson Valley. This is Fran Tuno, and it's my pleasure to introduce our next writer, Edward McCann. Ed is an award-winning writer-producer and the founder and editor of Read 650, celebrating the spoken word with live events and this podcast. Here's Ed, recorded in front of a live audience at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York, reading Requiem. Crouched before a cold fireplace with a lit match in my hand, I touched the flame to some crumpled newspaper tucked beneath the kindling, and a small headline on an adjacent page caught my eye college and community chorale to resume. On impulse, I rescued that page and smoothed it flat on the floor. The fire crackled and roared to life as I read about a student choral group at the local college that welcomed community members, no auditions required. Rehearsals for a spring performance of Mozart's Requiem were about to begin, a three-hour class meeting for the next 15 Wednesday nights. I couldn't possibly do that, I thought, Yet I hesitated to return the paper to the fire. That same impulse made me flag my calendar for the first class. Though I had once loved choral singing, I cataloged all the reasons why I should just forget about this. Other than some Christmas caroling, I hadn't sung in a chorus or choir in 30 years. I'd hardly touched a keyboard or guitar or even read a piece of sheet music in nearly as long. Besides, my work schedule was too demanding and unpredictable for me to make all of those rehearsals. I was still thinking that this late winter Wednesday as I walked into the music department's recital hall. All was instantly familiar. The water fountain and bulletin board, the scent of floor wax, and the sounds from a distant rehearsal room, a solo piano, a woman singing scales. Feeling like an imposter, I signed out a copy of the bound 80-page score, took a seat in the bass section in the rear of the room, and greeted the men around me. I counted 50 singers in that room equally split between students and gray hairs like me. While the last stragglers arrived, I opened the score and began reading. I was nervous. My armpits were damp. But I calmed myself, recalling my beloved elementary school music teacher, Mrs. Diane Jacobs, who taught me, every good boy does fine. The accompanist, a small, bald man, settled himself on the bench before the baby grand in the front of the room. The director managed a perfunctory greeting and directed us to a page somewhere in the middle of the score. Okay, he said, raising his hand, sopranos. The pianist played and the women up front sang as if they already knew the piece. (laughs) Staring at the music, I struggled to orient myself, to follow along as the women sang. Now, the director said, looking at us, basses. The piano again, the collective intake of breath around me, followed by the sound of men singing, a resonance I felt in my chest. All those notes looked like birdshot scattered on the page. 
Still wondering if I should really have sat with the tenors, I found my place and I joined in. But when that line ended, I couldn't find the next bass clef fast enough and they went on without me. I can't do this, I thought after rehearsal, certain that I would not return. I felt unaccountably angry, and it seemed to me I'd been angry every day for the six months since my brother George had died. Prematurely and unnecessarily, in my opinion, anger that had shielded me from the grief that lurked just beneath it. But I did return. Fourteen more times. Clocking nearly 50 hours singing a 400-year-old funeral mass in Latin. A piece of music that's now part of my DNA. Throughout all those hours of rehearsal, I was grieving, and I was singing that requiem for my lost brother. Those Wednesday night rehearsals had begun in the dark, but as winter receded, the days grew longer and brighter. The evening of the recital, finally on stage in tuxedos and gowns, we sang Mozart's masterwork beside a 26-piece orchestra all of us joining to form a complex machine assembled just this one time to make an extraordinary and beautiful sound. And then before I knew it, it was spring. Ed McCann is a regular feature writer for Milieu Magazine and a longtime contributing editor to Country Living. His features and essays have been published in many literary journals, anthologies, and national magazines, including Better Homes and Gardens, Good Housekeeping, The Irish Echo, The Sun, and others. He lives and writes in New York's Hudson River Valley. Thank you, Fran. When you introduce me, I feel like I'm hearing my name in lights. And Fran Tuno, by the way, is a terrific freelance writer, announcer, and voice actress. And if you've got a potential gig for Fran, visit her website, frantuno.com. And that's Fran, T-U-N-N-O, two N's, frantuno.com. Our executive producer is Richard Kolath. I'm your host and Read 650's founder and executive editor. Our editorial team is Stephen Lewis, David Masello, and Lisa Donati-Meyer. Our announcer, as you heard, is Fran Tuno. Our chief technology officer and troubleshooter is Sarah Caldwell, and our show was produced by Jim Russick. If you like this show and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You'll be able to catch up on episodes you may have missed, like What We Wore, Back to High School, or Tales of New York. And you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. Coming up right after the break, it's writer Leanne Soule with Between the Lines. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. And here's Frantuno once again. Support for Read 650 comes from the Lifelong Learning Institute at Vassar College, offering a broad range of non-credit educational courses and activities to members 55 and over at a minimal cost. Classes are taught by volunteer members, retired and active faculty, and outside experts. Vassar LLI is a volunteer-run organization designed for adults who love to learn and wish to contribute to the larger community in their pursuit of knowledge. Learn more at vassar.edu. Are writers born or are they made? Is the desire to write something that's innate or is it something that's acquired over time through exposure, encouragement, 
inspiration, or some mysterious combination. Once the creative impulse takes root in someone, it can grow and take various forms over time. And to share perspective on her own experience, this is Leanne Soul reading The Tree of Creativity. My grandmother's creativity was vast and inexhaustible. Throughout her lifetime, she was a mixed-media artist, a painter, a stitcher, and a writer. In the 1950s, when she was raising my mother and uncle, they'd often come home from school to find that she'd repainted an entire room or sewed a party dress. She made art out of everything around her, a vase of flowers, a kitchen clock, the sepia-toned faces of her ancestors' photographs. But because she was a woman of her time, her creative work was bound to her home. I wasn't a writer before my grandmother died. I was a musician and a teacher, a voracious reader who kept a journal but never felt called to write for anyone other than myself. But after I'd grieved my grandmother's death, after I'd stood at her headstone and felt the tears dry on my face, missing the way she'd called me Cookie, I felt consumed by an unquenchable thirst to create. Only then did I begin to write. Novels, short stories, blog posts, essays, I wrote them all. My creative energy felt as inexhaustible as hers had been. Later, during a meditation session, I had a vision of that creative energy. It was rooted in my heart, a small orb of violet-gold light. As I observed it, the light threads multiplied and intensified. They shot out of my heart and encircled my body. They swept through my house, shattering the windows, then wrapped around my town, my country, and finally the earth itself, arcing off its surface and into the infinite universe. I could feel its root in my chest, warm and pulsing. It felt like a tree of creativity, transplanted there by my grandmother, a gift to her granddaughter who lived in a world where a woman could wield her creative power without boundaries. Writing is how I best create. When I make music, I can transmit a feeling. When I teach, I can inspire growth. But when I write, I can do both and more. I can tell stories of injustice, remind people of forgotten history. I can get down to the heart of what I truly think and feel, who I am at my core. Most of all, writing is the way I tell stories about my family. It's the way I connect to my grandmother. A small offering in return for her invaluable gift. Leanne Soul is an award-winning writer whose fiction and creative nonfiction credits include Juxtaprose Magazine, Barnstorm Journal, Hippocampus Magazine, and Rappahannock Review. An elementary band teacher, she has directed more than 200 student performances. Just think about that for a minute. Her master's degree in humanistic and multicultural education led her to restorative social justice work, and she recently served on her school district's equity team and became one of the founding members of a local My Brother's Keeper chapter. Leanne lives with her husband, two young children, and a cranky 20-year-old cat in Poughkeepsie, New York. Between the Lines is a regular feature of the Read 650 podcast, and it's the place we encourage writers of all genres to share their thoughts about writing and the writing life. For details, click the Submissions tab on our website, read650.org, and while you're there, review submission calls for our upcoming shows.
I'm taking a moment here to say a big and very sincere thank you to all the donors who contributed to this year's annual appeal. There are many nonprofit organizations worthy of your generosity, and the fact that you included Read 650 in your year-end charitable giving means a great deal to me personally, and those very helpful dollars give us a tangible lift that will really help us in our efforts to serve our mission in this coming year. I, uh, I cannot thank you enough for all that you do to make all of this possible, and we simply can't do it without you. That's our show for this week, and we thank writers Annabelle Monahan, Carrie Patterson, and Leanne Soul. If you like the show, please share it with a friend. That really helps new listeners to find us. Thanks again for listening today and for helping to spread the word about the spoken word. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650.